0: NapaBroadcasting.com, Napa Valley Radio, for the way we live now. Thanks for joining us here on NapaBroadcasting.com. One of the guiding beliefs in foreign affairs is that no two countries that were actively engaged as successful trading partners ever went to war with each other. This idea is put forth repeatedly by diplomats around the world and most frequently by Tom Friedman on the pages of the New York Times. But what happens when two countries, two trading partners, don't have parity on the production of a particular product, but have interlocking and conflicting needs, jealousies, interests, and misunderstandings. The results can create a crisis on a global level, even if the product is wine. That's the story my guest Suzanne Mustisich tells in her book Thirsty Dragon. It's the story of China's quest to become a global wine power and France's Bordeaux region seeking to hang on to past glory. Suzanne Mustasich is a contributing editor at Wine Spectator. She was previously a Bordeaux correspondent for AFP, a columnist for the Chinese magazine Wine Life, and a contributor to Wine Business International. It is my pleasure to welcome her here to talk about her book, Thirsty Dragon, China's Lust for Bordeaux and the Threat to the World's Best Wine. Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Talk a little bit about what got you started initially on this project, and and really this attempt on the part of China to become a global wine power.
1: Well, I've been in Bordeaux since 1999, and ever since I arrived, I was fascinated by the way Bordeaux commercializes its wine, the way it trades wine, and it, it's sort of it's part of Bordeaux that a lot of people don't see. And I was I wanted to write a book. I knew I wanted to write a book about Bordeaux, but I wanted to do something. A little different I wanted to put Bordeaux in its context of say greater events you might say and I was just I was reporting on on the wine trade and I was always sort of watching and trying to figure out what was what was the story I was going to write and then I hadn't even thought of, of China honestly and then it it arrived on the scene and as happens in other industries it happened it arrived very quickly and I just thought this is this is great this this could be it. But you know, you don't know at first as a reporter. You just you are covering the events, you don't know if it's just a a flash in the pan, if it's mm-hmm. gonna be something that's gonna be over with quickly. And of course of course it wasn't. And very, very quickly I started investigating and I went to China and
0: just the, the the people drawn to this challenge were fascinating. And tell us a little bit about Bordeaux at that point in time, and what was going on with the wine business there.
1: Well, it was a very difficult time. I had arrived during a boom time, of course, and then with the the banking crisis, we Bordeaux was it was in desperate situation. They'd also priced themselves out of the U.S. market when they lost one of the major importers. Shu with the states, so there was I was already covering that as a journalist. I knew that they were in a, in a lot of trouble and then with the, the banking crisis their their customers sort of disappearing not because they didn 't want to buy borderline but they they might not have a bank anymore they might not have a credit line restaurants weren 't were closing they weren 't paying their bills it was a It was a very desperate situation and and they had a, a decent vintage to sell. That wasn't the quality of the wine wasn't a problem, but it was it was a you know a near catastrophe. And then, just with this vintage that came out with a low, relatively low price because of the economic situation, the Chinese started buying on primer, which is when Bordeaux sells this wine as a futures commodity, and it, it just arrived at the right moment, but it arrived because they had been building that market for decades. You know, it didn't just sort of arrive by chance Or, or even overnight. This was a long, long slog.
0: Was there a resistance initially in Bordeaux to selling significant amounts of wine to China? Was there concern?
1: No, not at all. That's one thing that's very interesting about Bordeaux, which is a you know 240,000 people. Uh, probably in the larger Bordeaux area, maybe a million. So are you know we're, this is the provinces of, of France, and you would maybe think it's going to be quite conservative. It's a very the wine world there is very bourgeois. You, mm-hmm. you would think maybe they're very conservative and xenophobic, but not at all, because they have always in this influx of foreigners in Bordeaux. And because it's an export commodity, you know, half the crop is exported. So there's constant contact with foreign countries. And they've been trying to sell to China since the late 1700s. I and mean, this is this has been a dream for the Bordeaux-Wine merchants for a long, long time. And it just never paid off until, for a lot of reasons that had nothing to do with Bordeaux, the the Chinese started buying Bordeaux wine, and then again, and then it rose significantly, very, very quickly. But it was this was the the fruit of a long held dream to sell to China. And so when the Chinese started buying, it was just like great. And it's a commodity. You have got over three hundred wine merchants selling these wines. They don't they don't say, oh, I'm not going to sell it to that country because we don't like them or we don't understand them that's the That's the unique thing about how Bordeaux sells its wine. It's a commodity that's available to anyone on the planet anywhere.
0: Talk a little bit about what had gone on in China, and you talked about the the really the long lead up to this and the way the wine business there, particularly the high end wine business, really had been cultivating and starting to grow for for quite some time.
1: yeah, I mean there was just just to very briefly go back before the, the the Communist revolution in new China, you might say, um, there had been wine going into China through the through the expat community, uh, to the treaty ports, mainly through the British merchants. So there was always this and there was just a bit of of contact with Chinese the Chinese elite. And even in the self-strengthening movement at the end of the 1800s in China, there was one of these um, emissaries came to Bordeaux and visited a wine merchant there. So there was this tiny, this little trickle of of contact between Bordeaux and and the real Chinese, not just expats. But then everything shut down after 49. When China opened up, the second joint venture was a a wine joint venture. So already, winemakers, French winemakers, were trying to get into China. And one of the first thing, one of the things they needed in the, in the those early years of, of joint ventures was something to serve foreigners when they came. And they needed to woo foreign investment, and they needed wines in the five-star hotels for the expats over there. And there was a Hong Kong merchant named. Thomas Yip, who had already been working in the wine business for a long time, and he had very good contacts with Bordeaux. And he knew the wine he needed to get in there was, it was Bordeaux, it was Bordeaux classified gross. because of the, the prestige, uh, the, the pleasure, the history of it. It was a luxury item. It was what expats like to drink in five-star hotels. <laughs> so there was already this fine wine was going into China right away. A tiny, we're talking about small, small amounts. It was, I think, right as China was opening up, there was about just under 4,000 bottles going into China, which now it's about 55 million bottles. So you can tell it's just, it was a tiny little amount. The the Bordeaux Wine Council wasn't even keeping track of the of the quantity. The volume of it was so small. But for Bordeaux, that was, that was the way to bring fine wine in to a new market. A new market that didn't have any demand for wine. And I think that's important to emphasize that no one was asking for wine. No one, and certainly there weren't any Chinese people saying we have to have wine. They didn't have the money to buy imported wine, first of all. But then at the same time, the Chinese were looking for for sectors to develop. and I always say that the wine grape, unlike the table grape, is a grape that keeps on giving. It, it serves so many purposes for Chinese development, economic development. First of all, they're reclaiming the desert, so when they're planting their own vines, there it's there's a very... It's, an, it's considered an industrial product. So this, is, this has to not only create employment, but it has to tick a lot of different boxes, you might say. So there's also jobs for along the time, it's forced migration, but jobs for people who are being moved from a very very poor region to a region where they can have some access to, to medical care and, and jobs. It foreign investment. It creates a whole new sectors like wine tourism. And it was just, and it's moving people off of grain-based alcohol, which is not only bad for the health, but it was taking uh, grain that needs to be used and still needs to be used to feed people and it's and so it's considered better for the health it's better for the food supply and it also is a product that is it's kind of a romantic product and there's a sophistication there's there's something that appeals to China's growing middle class you know they they want to have some this little this glass, just a glass of wine, but it represents something more to them. And so, even as fine wine is going into China from, through imports, they're, they're developing their own domestic production, which was an industrial production. It, it's not, it was not fine wine. There were people, there are people now today trying to produce fine wine in China. But in the beginning, it was, it was just, we have this desert and let's plant it. Or we're near a port, so and they grow some other fruits. So let's plant wine grapes. You know, there wasn't, there was no sense of, let's let's compete with Bordeaux or Burgundy or Napa, you know, or Oregon and, and and produce the finest wines out there. It was just let's get people jobs, let's hold down the desert, let's attract foreign investment, let's create new sectors like wine tourism.
0: To what extent was the relationship with Bordeaux as a result of all the money that, that the Chinese poured into Bordeaux for exporting these wines, to what extent did that relationship in any way aid in the continued development of the Chinese wine business?
1: Well, obviously, when the Chinese arrived and started buying so much at seemingly any price, that gave them a lot of influence in Bordeaux, and, and Bordeaux a lot of the Bordeaux chateaus and merchants just sort of ignored their other clients because the Chinese could pay top dollar for everything. So, that, so there was just this, this, this speed with which they arrived and how much, the, the amount of money they arrived with. And they kind of just swaggered in, like we've got the money, you know, the Americans don't have any money, no hasn't money, we've got it. And these are our terms. Yeah. And they very quickly tried to monopolize products, which is difficult to do in Bordeaux but they had so much money that they could they at least make a good attempt at it. Um, the whole there's just a, there was a that also came with it was just all the students. They seemed to arrive overnight. Uh, a, a large influx of of immigrants really, people who some just came for a short time but a lot of them decided then to stay. So and in a small provincial city, you know, that's something that you you know this right away. Um, but it gave the Chinese a lot of power in negotiating, and it left the Bordelais sort of scrambling to cope with the market. And there were language barriers, and there are certainly business practices which the Bordelais were not, the, the new traders were not ready to cope with. The people who had been already trading in China were much better uh, equipped to deal with uh, the Chinese business practices.
0: To what extent did it result in an awful lot of wine tourism from China to Bordeaux?
1: Well, at first we didn't see that because it was very difficult for the Chinese to get visas to come. So, in fact, there was problems with tastings. We had be tastings set up for the Chinese buyers, and they wouldn't get their visas. Everything so would be canceled. Um, but eventually, as you know, because you see in the U.S. as well, the, the Chinese government loosened up the the tourism visas, and so so then we started getting a lot of. At first, really, no one was set up to cope with it. We get a few Chinese, and no one. There was no translator. Uh, there was there was very little understanding of the the culture gap. There was very little understanding of the kind of foods Chinese people might want to eat. It they really it caught everyone kind of by surprise. So at first, it was it was kind of a wobbly situation. And then, as the influx grew, and it grew pretty quickly, Bordeaux adapted. Bordeaux very good at adapting to to new groups of foreigners. So pretty soon, they're getting, you know, they're hiring translators. They're trying to figure out what to serve in terms of food. They're looking for food and wine pairings that that work for the Chinese palate, the many different Chinese cuisines. Um, but one thing I brought to you was Chinese investors in real estate, of course, and that. That I think has caught Bordeaux by surprise.
0: What impact, if any, has it had on the Bordeaux wine business itself? What hap- what impact has it had on the wine?
1: Well, I don't think Bordeaux has changed its style of wine making. It's it's not as if Bordeaux is saying we need to make this kind of wine to 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 sell to the Chinese. First of all, because the Chinese haven't really developed. As, as a nation, you might say a certain type of wine that they want to drink, because mm-hmm. so much of the wine purchases have not been based on taste; it's based on a brand. Now that will change as the wine market wine market develops in China, but for right now, that's that's not the situation. There are brand wines, meaning you buy up grapes from or or the the fermented grapes, even it could be the wine from a bunch of different producers, and you. Blended together, and you package it as one wine, as a, a brand wine. We call it a negociant wine in Bordeaux. So those wines are being there are wines that are being blended to please what they perceive to be the Chinese palate. So that is happening, but no one's no one's changing the way they're making wine. You know, at the classified growth for the Chinese market, that has definitely not happened. Um, but the business practices have had to – Bordeaux has had to smarten up in terms of business practices. And the big, the big challenge on a business level for Bordeaux is the counterfeiting.
0: Talk a little about that.
1: Yeah. there's a, Well, there was a – there's a government – a study done by government trade advisors that found that for every bottle of real French wine in the Chinese market, there's a bottle of fake – actually, more than one bottle of fake French wine – and the challenge for protecting brands has been enormous. And the French and actually nobody has really really been able to tackle this problem. It's, it's, it's just a mind-boggling challenge. For It's the barrier to trade that's it's phenomenal. There's one thing that has taken a long time for people to understand is that in China, the first type, person to register owns the brand. And what has happened is that the importers and distributors have registered the brands in China. And so they own it. They own that brand. And it doesn't matter if you've, you've been making that wine for decades or for generations. You don't own it in China. So that's been, that's been a tremendous challenge. But the same, that, that's the same challenge, actually, faced by Chinese winemakers. They might sell 50 cases to a sub-distributor who then actually sells 100. You know, 50, 50 of those cases are fake-wide. So there, it is, it's an industrial production. The, it, the stories that sort of make the headlines are often the, the abandoned chicken farm. that's some mom-and-pop counterfeiting scheme. Mm. But in fact, the, the real threat comes from a more industrial-level production. And it's done very well. The the, the labeling, the, right down to the security codes, now the, the security labels on the bottle, everything, everything is safe. So that's just an enormous threat. It's an enormous threat for American vintners, for for anyone dealing in China. And there really isn't, at this point, any one method for, for combating that. One of so the, that's
0: probably the biggest one. One of the other issues is in the money that flowed into Bordeaux, that a lot of that was, was government money, and a lot of that money came from arguably corrupt sources. Talk about that.
1: Well, that's, you know, that's a question I asked many, many times, and there, there was a general assumption that this was some, some money laundering, but how do you find out? I talked to money laundering experts, and it's very, very difficult to trace dirty money. Especially when it's coming from a state-owned organization. You know, uh, sorry, this is a state-owned corporation. So, yeah, they were, obviously, we can see with the corruption trials, the arrests in in China, some of that is is most likely politically motivated, but a lot of it is is an attempt to clean up the corruption. You know, as long as they're paying, there's an invoice, they're they're wiring the money, it's not coming in suitcases of cash. I'm not, you know, the, there was a lot of cases of the French reporting suspicious amounts of money. They say, well, "We're not sure about this person or this company," and they notify the French authorities. The French authorities and investigate, and unless they find something, you know, the, the business deal goes through. So, I'm not sure that the, you know, they as long as Bordeaux merchants were, doing what they needed to do in terms of the French government, sending an alert saying, we're not sure if we should be dealing with this person or this seems suspicious to us. As long as the French authorities come back and say, we didn't find anything, then I don't think you can expect any more of the wine merchants. However, there was a deep, deep suspicion that, that there was a lot of money laundering going on.
0: At this point, what percentage of the wine being produced in Bordeaux is going to China?
1: I think it's, well, about half the, half the, roughly say half is exported, and Bordeaux has a little less than a quarter of that now. At one time it was, it was more, let's see, I think in, let's see, in 2012 it was 72 million bottles. Okay, Bordeaux's production is between 600 and 800 million bottles a year, half exports.
0: Now we're down to I think we're about 55 million bottles. To what extent has the tremendous volume that Bordeaux has been able to sell to China? To what extent has that inspired other wine regions in France, and and certainly we've seen it here in the US to really try and compete with Bordeaux in selling wines into China and and how has China responded to that?
1: Well I think um, well, obviously this Bordeaux success has attracted pretty much every wine region on the planet. And, and that I think that's a fantastic thing. You know, Bordeaux doesn't want to sell any more wine to China at this point. That's a it's an enormous market for them. They they succeeded. It's been despite all the volatility, despite the boom and the bust, everything. It's a huge success for Bordeaux. And now it's sort of it might say it's stabilizing. They want to they want to focus on the rest of their crop on other markets. So and as the wine market. Grows in China, Bordeaux's share of that will, will necessarily become smaller. Right now, it's still the French wine is still the largest single um, share of the imported wine market in China. But that's you know that will change as as everybody else comes into the market. I think that's a good thing, and the Chinese are very open to other regions. I think it's very similar to the Americans actually. There's a real sense of discovery. Of I want to learn about that new wine region. I want to try new food and wine pairing. They're very open. So right now, China's the Chinese wine consumers, particularly the younger ones, are looking for that that new wine region. And, and as they get to travel more, that's it's also on their their vacation. Mm-hmm. Planning, you know, like they want to visit wine regions in different parts of the world, so they're very open. It's a fantastic opportunity for just even tiny wine regions and you know, places in Eastern Europe, which aren't big exporters, are exporting to China now. It might just be small, but but the potential there is 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 tremendous.
0: Is Bordeaux relying too much on exports to China at this point? If another region, for example, or another part of the world becomes popular, becomes trendy within China, what impact is that going to have if if exports from Bordeaux are dramatically cut?
1: well, for right for right now, Bordeaux still represents first of all red wine. It represents luxury. It still has a great Brand value, and I, I don't see anyone else really threatening that right now. Because you got to remember that Bordeaux has volume behind it. Very few wine regions have that kind of volume. So it's when you're and when you're dealing in China, you need volume to really create a brand image. You need volume. So it's you know it's one thing to be selling wine in, in Shanghai or Beijing, but to really get into the other the other cities and second and third tier cities, you need volume. So Bordeaux has that. So it's it's pretty hard to, to compete with them on that level. Um, I think where there could be competition would be if another premium wine region well first of all is ready to export a large quantity to China. That could you know, that could be a bit of a threat. But I don't think I think it's growing. The market's growing. So it's not that they're gonna suddenly stop buying Bordeaux, but they're gonna buy they're going to start buying Napa and and Sonoma and they're buying Burgundy, but again, Burgundy's got a, a volume problem. I don't think it's so much of a, a threat to Bordeaux. The very top, the most expensive Bordeaux wines, yes, but that that demand has dropped off not because the Chinese have turned to other wines, but because of the the anti-corruption, anti-graft. Those wines are directly associated with with kind of freewheeling, free-spending, corrupt officials. So. the the drop in demand for those wines has certainly happened. I don't see it coming back right now.
0: And what's happening in terms of of the internal wine industry within China? Is it moving away or beyond just the industrial model? Is fine wine beginning to be produced there? I think think that's one of the most
1: exciting things, and I think it's, it's great for the wine market in general, and it's great for, for instance, American vintners who want to export. This idea of finding... Chinese terroirs that produce fine wine, not just industrial wine. There, are. They're, they're starting to to find areas um, where they believe they can produce fine wine grapes. It takes a long time to be sure of that. You know, the vines have to reach a certain age, then the you have to see how the wines develop. So it's not a it's not an overnight venture, and that's hard sometimes for the Chinese to understand because they they want overnight miracles. They want overnight success. Uh It's not, you know, they're not big on long-term. So that's taking people, a lot of these people who are investing in fine wine production in China have either been trained in Bordeaux, actually, has a big influence, but they've all been trained elsewhere in, in Europe, usually sometimes in California. And they go back and they take that knowledge with them and they try to apply it in China. But there's also foreign groups. There's a seed group has planted in, in Peng Lai. Uh, LVMH has a vineyard in Shangri-La now, as well as in Ningxia, making a sparkling wine in, in Ningxia. It's, so it's foreign investment that's obviously playing a large role in trying to produce fine wine in China, but there's also Chinese winemakers who are trying very, very hard. It's not easy. Often the only land they can get is not based on soil studies. You know, it's based on just a lease that they're able to get somehow. So and these the hurdles for creating producing a fine wine are enormous in China. It's enormous.
0: What if anything is the downside for Bordeaux? Where is the threat, if any, to them? Well the threat really came from speculation. And, and that wasn't just Chinese speculators; it was speculators
1: in Europe, in in America, speculating on the Chinese market. So, on the one hand, they had Chinese traders coming in and really setting the rules. And because of, because there weren't other markets thriving at that time, um, they didn't pay their bills. So it left a lot of uh, a lot of merchants struggling financially, still struggling financially to. To deal with the unpaid bills, because if the the buyer, if your importer doesn't pay the bill, the negociant, the wine merchant, is still liable for that bill to the chateau. Okay, so you had a lot. We had canceled orders, so they were just threatened financially. Their financial stability was threatened. You had traders coming in with a lot of money trying to monopolize uh, the 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 different chateau wines, which is bad for your other markets. It pulls the wine in out of the other markets that you've been developing for decades. There's the Chinese also wanted to eliminate all the middlemen. They didn't want the negotiants there, and they don't want the, the brokers or the courtiers there. They want to go straight to the chateau. Well, that's not the way the Bordeaux system works. And there's a lot of jobs that rely on the system as it is. There's... It also allows the Bordeaux merchants to sell a lot of other wines. You know, When they go and sell their their first gross or the second gross around the world, they sell a lot of other wines with it. And that's how Bordeaux has always sold its wine. They've got between 600 and 800 million bottles of wine to sell a year. And just a tiny, tiny portion of that is classified growth. So they use those luxury brands to not only create a market, but to, to sell everything else. To build a to build a, a demand, a market, a taste for Bordeaux wine. So when you've got a group coming in and saying we're just going to take this over here, these top wines, and not the rest, and we're going to only put them in one market, well, that could destroy the work that Bordeaux has done over generations to get their wine the best distribution around the world. So the threat was was not just from Chinese traders; it was from speculators in, in different markets that pushed the prices out of the other markets. The Americans backed up and said, we're not going to pay these kind of prices. London was a different situation because they might buy the wine, but it wasn't for London. It wasn't for England. It was for, to ship to, to Hong Kong or, or into China. Uh, you had restaurants who had had their, their Lafitte, their allocation of Lafitte, and they, it wasn't on the restaurant list anymore because the restaurant could sell it to someone selling to China for more money. So it was a complete disruption of overdose distribution. And that, you know, as anyone in, in business can say, you don't, you don't abandon a stable distribution. You don't abandon customers that you've worked for decades to, to cultivate. You don't abandon that just for someone who just appears on the horizon. That's, that's not wise. And that's what was happening. So now the speculative bubble burst. Um, sales have fallen. You know, dramatically, and Bordeaux has had to to adjust to that. A lot of that, though, is sort of a shakeout in the in the Chinese distribu- distribution of wine. They there was just so many fly-by-night distributors that bought all this wine and they had no way of really selling it. They had a they were selling it the way they they might buy electronics and leather goods and auto parts, and they just added wine to their to their list of, of inventory. And so when prices started falling, they just they, they dumped their wine. So that's bad for the market as well. There's warehouses of unsold wine in China. And, and that, again, is a threat to the market.
0: And, and coming back. I could back, go on and on about that the threat to right. the market. Sorry. And, and, <laughs> it just never seems to stop. Uh, <laughs> and, and I want to come back to, to one threat you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And that is the, the fake wine, the counterfeit wine, and, and, the, yeah, imp- that's the, and the impact time. that that's going to have.
1: That is probably the longest lasting because obviously distribution will will stabilize you know some of the 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 more professional distributors are still in business, so that part of the market will stabilize those threats will that threat will diminish however, the counterfeiting the shapes the the i p threats the the brand squatting that is enormous it is just enormous there is a there is this government report, a study that was done by the trade advisors, and they have, a, they have one of the best plans I've heard so far, which is just federating an, an attack, not just having, right now it's different regions, different winemakers are all trying different methods to, to fight the counterfeiters. So they're all going in different directions. And the counterfeiters always seem to be one step ahead. So, it's, there needs to be some kind of organized group effort, whether on, just on a national level in France, whether European level, potentially other countries joining outside the EU. And it's a, the best way I've heard so far is there's, there's ways of using technology on, on the bottle, uh, on the, the label on the capsule, on the cork, that will make it difficult to, to counterfeit when all used together and connected to a uh, highly secure database, which is apparently what the auto parts industry does. Hmm. So, which I thought was really interesting. I thought, okay, and the auto parts, even though they're, you know, they're competitors, they've, they've grouped together to fight fake auto parts. And that so far hasn't happened in the wine industry, but it seemed to me one of the more well-thought-out approaches. They're, you know, they're doing different things with, with the bottle, both visible and invisible, same thing with the labels. But when you talk to the investigators who work in China, they say, as soon as you create a security label, the counterfeiters fake it. They even have, you're supposed to be able to, to you know, scan it with your iPhone or your smartphone and go to websites you can verify the bottle is real. Well, they, the counterfeiters will create a fake website. It all looks like it's legitimate and it's not. So what's been explained to me that, again, makes a lot of sense is you're not going to stop the counterfeiters from counterfeiting. What you want to do is at least make it difficult to counterfeit your product so they move on to the next target. They're not going to suddenly go get legitimate jobs. (laughs) They're not going to suddenly... No, it's true. (laughs) They're not going to. And you want to just make it difficult for them so you're not the easy target. The only way out of this mess at this point for Bordeaux, for the French, for the Americans, for all the wine business is to make it as difficult as possible. You know, the counterfeiters attack Chinese wine as well. So this isn't, you know, this isn't just targeting foreign products. That's that's definitely not the case. The other major obstacle is Chinese don't take it very seriously. So not a lot happens. You know, a Chinese winemaker was telling me how he has to pay the local police to investigate his sub-distributor. For faking his wine, but nothing happens. It doesn't shut down the sub distributor. So the only time the Chinese get very interested in these cases is when there's a health and hygiene issue, when people might be poisoned. Now, in imported wine, that's not. It doesn't seem to be the case. Very often, it's just they'll take Chilean bulk wine and they label it Bordeaux. You know, they'll, or they'll take some local Chinese wine, mix it with some other bulk wine that they they brought in. So it's not dangerous. It's not, it's not, it's consumer fraud, but it's not dangerous. There are cases when they put really nasty concoctions in the bottle. And that's when Beijing gets interested. So now the, there has to be perhaps a diplomatic effort to convince Beijing that it reflects poorly on them, you know, this whole counterfeiting and, 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 and fakes industry that they have. And there's some sign that that, that might be happening. Recently, the government has gotten behind a, a campaign to make meat in China be something that you're proud of. You know, that's not, that's not the case right now. But if the Chinese, as a... As a, as a nation, we want to be proud of made in China, then they're going to have to do something about the whole fakes and counterfeiting industry. And that will, you know, that's a good thing for the wine business.
0: I want to come back to the issue of resentment. In Bordeaux, they seemed happy to be willing to sell their wine to the Chinese. When we look at other wine regions of the country, including here in Napa Valley, we see a certain amount of resentment that selling bulk wine or selling large quantities of wine to China somehow represents a failure of getting the wine sold somewhere else.
1: No, we don't have that atmosphere at all. Because again, I think it's because of the way it's not the Chateau selling the wine, it's the wine merchants. So and the wine merchants are very practical they don't, it's not, this is not, this is, there's no, um, they sell it to Angola. They right. sell it in a lot of African countries. And you got to think about who's buying the wine there. Um, they sell it, they'll sell it anywhere. They don't, it, they, no, they, the. wow, well, they're wine merchants. And literally, they're exporters. And if somebody, some obscure place or a place they've never sold wine before contacts them, they will most likely sell them wine. It's not, um, that's, I think that's why Bordeaux wasn't, wasn't so prepared for this influx of Chinese money. Hmm. They're so used to trading with anybody who, who ponies up the cash that they didn't really, they thought they could handle China better than they did. I think they thought, we, this is what we do and we deal with sometimes some pretty
0: nasty characters. Well, and, you know and, and and you get you got to the heart of it really because clearly and, and and as you talk about it I really see the difference between here and there which is that there's a much greater mercantile tradition in Bordeaux. And oh, and, yeah. and when you look at Napo and Sonoma and you look at you know there there isn't that tradition. It, there isn't that same international mercantile tradition that's at play at all. So the reaction is yeah. entirely different.
1: Bordeaux, I mean, Bordeaux exists because they're vineyards, obviously, but it really exists as a wine region because of the merchants, because mm. of its 800 years of exports and right. trading. That's right. what makes the difference, and that's what puts, gets the wine the distribution they have. You know, it's and that's really why Bordeaux is all over the planet. It's because of these wine merchants, which, which is what paid off for Bordeaux. Because when one market flounders, they they shift to other markets they've already been working on. But right now, not, I didn't we didn't get to that. But right now, there's nobody else to 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 take up the slack from China. You know, it's if China were to fall away today, it would be a disaster for Bordeaux. Who else is going to take 55 million bottles of wine? I don't see anybody. No, but seriously, cool, cool. I don't see them. Brazil hasn't come through. India has not come through. America has its own production and ports from all over, and it's a little sick of Bordeaux's prices. I mean, it's getting better in America for Bordeaux, but um, no, the Russians, I don't think so. So it's, you know, it's, Bordeaux has to hold on to China. But I do think Bordeaux's experience is, is has paved the way for Napa and everybody else. I and mean, I think hopefully they're learning from Bordeaux's mistakes.
0: What else might Napa learn from the Bordeaux China experience?
1: Well you know they're gonna start buying up Napa Vineyards, prepare yourself, yeah. I think it's gonna be enormous because Napa is already on their it's already on their radar. Yeah. So yeah, they're gonna start buying it. and you won't even know who's buying it. You won't know. It'll be some holding company. They won't reveal their names. You know, I don't even do those stories anymore from my spectator because it's virtual font news, another chateau sold to the Chinese. But also half the time they won't they won't say who they are. You know, it, it
0: it's always the shadowy group of investors. With respect to the vineyards they've bought in Bordeaux, has it been the same way? Has it been shadowy groups of investors? Has it been clearer who the purchasers are? How have they gone about it there, and what can we learn from that experience?
1: Well, they do have... You know, they want to buy a Grand Cru Classé. There's just money on the table for that when one comes up for sale. But... And the way they're, they're going about this is they're making sure these, these billionaires are making sure that they're part of the camaraderie, the different associations, you know, with Bordeaux wine, that they become familiar faces, trusted faces in Bordeaux. This is a, that's, that is a long game for them. Mm-hmm. They're, they're working on this. They're trying to make those connections so that they're not the, the scary Chinese investor, so that, it, so that they're accepted. Um, but they're very, they're very, very determined, and Napa will be on their, will be on their radar. Is on their radar.
0: It is on their radar. And it,
1: yeah. will it be able to outbid anybody? This is just, whatever they're going to pay for Napa vineyard is just a tiny amount of money for these people. They really, the sums of money are just enormous. And the other thing that's really is going to be difficult for Napa is that. These investments are a way of keeping their money safe. So you've got the government investing, but you've also got these tycoons who are, as we know, are increasingly ending up in jail are having their assets confiscated. And vineyard assets in a foreign country, it's very difficult to confiscate. And you've got to get the American government to agree to that. Wow. Uh, most likely they're not going to agree. Unless it's, you know, d- drug dealing or something like that, right? I mean, how often does that happen? The same thing in Europe. These are very safe places for them to park their money, and they don't really care if the business loses money, if they'll never recoup their investment, because at least they didn't lose it in China. It's still it's still something they own. So this is not just money laundering. It's money. It's they're they're placing the money, they're safeguarding it. And what better place than Napa? This is this has happened several times in in Bordeaux. They come as wine tourists, basically, but they're they're looking to buy. They're looking to buy, and you know they make discreet inquiries, and they pay a lot of money, and and it, and that's how it happens. When you trade with China, there's there's a lot that comes with it. You're not just sort of exporting your product there; you're inviting them to come
0: right. to you as well. Right.
1: And one of the one of the things they bring with them is the corruption and the counterfeiting, and the investment where they want to buy the source they want to buy that which in napa is is easier because the wines are sold from the winery of course in bordeaux it it goes for the wine merchant
0: suzanne mustasich the book is thirsty dragon china's lust for bordeaux and the threat to the world's best wines it's just out from henry holt suzanne i thank you so much for spending time with us
1: well, thank you. I enjoyed it. I hope I, I
0: I was able to tell
1: you a little bit about the adventure of creating the wine market in China.
0: Indeed. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to com.